It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It could be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is... Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. Hello and welcome back to Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. A podcast looking at every episode of classic sci-fi series Babylon 5. 30 years after it was released. My name is John Wilson, and I am a newbie to this show, discovering the world of Babylon 5 that J. Michael Straczynski has created for us, episode by episode, but with me, guiding me lovingly, tenderly, through this journey, is my good friend Blaine Dowler. How you doing, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you? I am here, you know, but I've, I've been playing with these um, with these toys that I got at the store. I don't know. They have a weird texture to them, and I, I, I've I've been noticing this like really tough carapace texture spreading over my skin. I'm not sure what that's all about. So I'm gonna see a doctor on that on Monday. Yeah, I'm sure 48 hours is plenty of time for that. <laughs> I'm sure nothing will get damaged the next 48 hours. <laughs> we are here to talk about infection today, everyone. Episode four of the first season of Babylon Five. Any thoughts or ideas before we go into all this? This is one, just to be completely open, it is not one of the best remembered episodes or most fondly remembered episodes. I found this time through, I enjoyed it a lot more than I did the first time for reasons we can get into later. Yeah, I was also the first time feeling just a little bit bored going through this. I watched each episode twice before we record and on the second episode, second viewing I was writing down my synopsis to so pay a little bit more attention to all the plot details. And I won't say that I necessarily enjoyed it more, but I got more out of it as far as nuance to the plot and everything. So yeah, we'll talk about it as we go. This is Infection. It was released on February 16th, 1994, which is why this episode is dropping on February 16th, 2024, 30 years later. See, it's in the name. And uh, yeah, we have the director is Richard Compton, who has directed a couple of episodes for us already. He did The Gathering and he did Midnight on the Firing Line. The writer is some guy, I don't know if we've seen him before, J. Michael Streksonski. I don't, I don't recognize that name, of course. Yeah, he's done a thing or two. A thing or two. So in this episode, I took your lead from last week's synopsis and broke this down by plot rather than by scene turns out it didn't really matter that much because the b plot is like five scenes and they're all like very very short this is mostly an a plot episode so what happens at the beginning of the episode um well not the very beginning because the b plot introduces us we'll come back to that we meet dr franklin's old teacher dr vance Hendricks. He has arrived at the station and meets with Dr. Franklin to see if he's up to joining him in one last big discovery. We also see a mysterious guy named Nelson Drake down in the cargo bay. 
He's uh, trying to smuggle something in past customs. And when the customs officer is uh, getting a little suspicious, Drake attacks him with a taser and kills him. It looks like a taser. You know, it's a handheld thing with little electric prongs on it. Knocks him out and causes a cardiac arrest. We uh, quickly discover that Nelson is Dr. Hendrix's assistant when he shows up in the med lab. And the two of them tell Dr. Franklin about some technological artifacts they have found below the surface of a planet called Ikara 7. This is a dead world that Dr. Hendrix believes used to be home to an advanced spacefaring society. The artifacts appear mechanical, but Franklin discovers they are composed of living tissue. This is a complex organic technology beyond anything that Earth knows about today. They don't realize that their objects have caused a brief energy spike, which has been detected up on the bridge. Franklin agrees to help examine the artifacts, but later, when Nelson is alone, he opens a box and smoky lightning hits him in the face. Next scene, we see that he has some sort of infection, eh? Showing up in the skin of his arm. Up on the bridge, they're still detecting those energy spikes, and Ivanova is trying to figure out the cause. But meanwhile, Franklin is a bit peeved that Hendrix did this expedition via corporate funding through, and I forgot to write down the uh, company's name, uh, Interplanetary Expeditions, are a company that are funding him. And ideally, when you're doing a scientific expedition, you go through grants through a university, but Dr. Hendricks says there's no time for all of that. Franklin points out that the company Interstellar Expeditions doesn't really appear to exist. There's not a whole lot of information on them, if any. So um, we see that Nelson is off wandering the station, continuing to go off the deep end. He removes something insectile from another container. He attaches it to himself and it like, you know, lightnings all over him and causes him to pass out. He wakes up later and attacks Franklin with some sort of energy bolt from his hand, which has turned into a gun hand. He looks almost completely inhuman at this point, with a carapace spreading all over his body, forming a kind of armor. Dr. Hendricks is interrogated by Sinclair and Garibaldi about the attack because his organic artifacts were never processed in customs, nor sent through the mandatory quarantine for all organic tissues coming on the station. Nelson continues wandering the station, shooting people with his new gun hand. This keeps triggering sensors on the bridge, so Sinclair sends Garibaldi and a squad of guards to track him down. Franklin determines that the technology programming indicates the Akaran civilization had created a perfect weapon to attack anyone who wasn't pure Akaran. But, you know, life doesn't really deal in purity. It deals in constant evolution and variety. So back in the day, the you know living biological weapon person ended up killing off all the Akarans after it killed off their enemies. That's why Akara 7 is now a dead world. And now, dun-dun-dun, it's killing everyone on the station that it can find. Which, you know, isn't that many people so far, but, you know, he's on a spree. So... Garibaldi's people, with Sinclair's help, they're able to get the transformed Nelson into an isolated cargo area, and Sinclair confronts him. Now, Sinclair has two options. Talk Nelson down, or open the airlock, which would kill both Nelson and himself. Sinclair does succeed after some fighting and shooting, 
in logicking Nelson out of the concept of genetic purity. So the transformed Nelson realizes all of his mistakes. He removes that insectile item from his chest, which evidently was the key to the whole thing, and he immediately reverts completely back to human form. After everything is resolved, Franklin confronts Dr. Hendricks because he knew his assistant had attacked the guy in customs and had dodged quarantine. Hendricks admits they were going to sell the technology as weapons back on Earth and asks Franklin to help him out for a cut of the profits. But Franklin has already called security who arrive and take Hendricks away. Garibaldi privately talks to Sinclair about his concern on all the risks that Sinclair has taken to his own life, and Sinclair really isn't sure how to respond. Later, Franklin commiserates with Ivanova that this genetic purity fanaticism might be an indicator of how the pro-Earth movement might go. And on that note, Earth Force representatives arrived to confiscate all the organic weapons technology for their own use. So that's the primary plot, and that's where we spend most of our time for the episode. But there is a B-plot. It's the second anniversary of Babylon 5 going online, and Interstellar Network News has sent Mary Ann Kramer to interview Commander Jeff Sinclair. But when Garibaldi meets her uh, when she arrives at the station, she is peeved because Sinclair is apparently dodging her. When Garibaldi asks Sinclair about it, Sinclair admits that he has indeed been dodging her because his last interview got him in trouble just for being honest. Now, Kramer appears in a couple of scenes throughout the episode. She uh, gets in the way on the bridge at one point when things are kind of high tension. But she really is a very minor element throughout the episode until the end, where she sits down with Sinclair for their interview in the last scene. Kramer asks Sinclair if space is worth it if all of this danger and everything is worth the effort. And Sinclair responds with a resounding yes, because one day our sun will go cold and Earth will die and all of humanity's efforts will prove to be for nothing unless we go to the stars. And that is the end of the episode. This episode featured, if I can get over to the page, Dr. Vance Hendricks was being played by David McCollum. And uh, David McCollum's... Possibly biggest claim to fame that you pointed out to me before we recorded, Blaine, is that he was on The Man From U.N.C.L.E. He was Ilya, who is the um, the number two guy on The Man From U.N.C.L.E. We also have Marshall Teague as Nelson Drake. Now, I didn't look up to see what Marshall Teague has done. I know that he. Uh, you said that he gets cast in another role in this show later. Yeah, if we look at his top four known for on IMDb, Roadhouse is number one, Babylon 5 is two, followed by Armageddon and Last Ounce of Courage. He has been in a lot of stuff over the years, rarely any recurring roles, but he is often cast as multiple roles through the course of a series. So he was in Walker, Texas Ranger as several different parts, Pensacola, Wings of Gold as a show I actually haven't seen, I did see Walker. And he comes back on Babylon 5 as a recurring role much later in the series, so we'll talk more about him later. And Marianne Kramer was played by Patricia Healy, whose roles have been few and far between. She was on The Bodyguard in 92. She was on Heat in 95. She has just had occasional acting roles over the years, nothing recurring since the 90s when she was on Profiler and Port Charles and Love and Marriage. 
So those are our three guest stars for the episode. So yeah, what are you thinking about this one? The first time through, I remember really not enjoying it because I found the makeup effects were not convincing. As you said, when he pulls the thing off his chest, just a flash of light and it all disappears. Rewatching it now with an eye to analysis, I realized that, you know, even though some of the execution is still not what I hoped it would be, it has a lot more that they were trying to do that I will respect for it. The goals were high. And now reading Straczynski's notes in the script book, he actually did not feel this was ready for production, and others on the production team talked him into it. He wanted to do another rewrite and shift it later in the season, but they said, no, it's good as is. And that must have been a, a pretty big shift, because they, as you said off the air, this was the first produced episode of the season. So a show that should involve a lot of effects and a lot of pre-production development got pushed up. Yeah, well, I think it was already slotted in the first one, but he was saying, I don't think it's ready. Let's push it back. And others were saying, no, no, it is ready. Let's go ahead. I actually did like the makeup effects, the um, the slow development of Nelson Drake over the course of the episode. It starts out as just some discoloration on his skin. You see the skin toughening up, especially in the face. I, I think they do a nice several transitionary stages to the full armored look. Now, I agree with you, at the end, whenever he takes off the device and crushes it and immediately transforms back into human form, I didn't like that because it had been a slow development to get here. I feel like it should have been a slow healing process to revert back, if he even would. They could have, they could have had him not revert back on screen and just had the, the conversation between Franklin and Armstrong. I said Armstrong, is that right? Um, Hendrix. Hendrix. I've... In my brain, I've been thinking Armstrong throughout this episode. I don't know why. Franklin and Hendrix. Because his first name is Vance. Okay. Is Vance Armstrong a person? You know what? I was thinking Vance Astrovic when I said that. Maybe <laughs> in any case, in any case, you know, they have you know, a couple of dropped lines of dialogue about how he's going to be okay. That could have ended, but ended up with a line, we think with some surgery, we should be able to remove the carapace. It looks like he has skin tissue underneath still. You know, something like that. Yeah, I would have preferred if pulling it off led to a flash, an immediate discoloration, maybe. Mm -hmm. And just to say, oh, yeah, that did make enough of a difference in the long term. But then, as you said, have them say, yeah, he's he's going to need a lot of reconstructive surgery. It'll you know, be in care. In fact, I think th this would be dramatic. And I suspect the only reason that they needed Nelson to live was for Franklin to have that conversation and prove that, yes, Vance actually knew more than he claimed he had about the illegal activities. Oh, yes, because, yeah, that's how Franklin is able to confirm his suspicions about Vance is because he's able to talk to him after everything off screen. Now, I felt like we had not seen a whole lot of Dr. Franklin yet in this show, so it's nice to get an episode that focused on him. Yeah, and we'll get, actually, another really good focus episode on him soon, uh, which is good because I think... Like we said, this is the first one in in the production, and watching it now, I could see moments where Richard Biggs is not delivering lines the way he would deliver those same lines later. Some of that is because of character development, because Babylon 5 is heavy on that. You cannot 
go through the life-altering experiences that people go through on sci-fi shows and not be changed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what has really raised this episode in my esteem is I realize now this was addressing bad science and PTSD. Oh, the PTSD with, uh, with Sinclair. Yes. Yeah. One of the things that, um, you know, in the opening, whenever, uh, whenever Garibaldi and Kramer are talking, we get, a, we get several things that I picked up on. And one of the things is that he, uh, Sinclair was off being a pilot. Cause I, I wrote down that, you know, we've talked before about how Sinclair likes to fly when he can. And then at the end, whenever they're doing the assault on Nelson, Sinclair is right there in the middle of it and leads it and is able to get Nelson off on his own and risk his own life. We're either going to succeed here or we're going to open the airlock and kill both of us. And so there's there's a lot going on with him there that is kind of being subtly portrayed. It hadn't clicked with me as a PTSD thing yet. I thought it was setting up something for later instead of calling back to something from the past. But I can see what you're saying now. Yeah, and a lot of that I didn't really feel it was PTSD until Garibaldi sits him down and says, I wasn't on the line, but I saw my share. And I knew a lot of guys who did. And when they come out, they're trying to find something to die for because it's easier than finding something to live for. Mm -hmm. And I really like Sinclair's response of, I don't have an answer for you, and I think I should. Thanks. And that was actually a really... You know, I, I've said before how I wasn't super keen on O'Hare's performance as Sinclair in this show, but he does some really subtle face changes, you know, because his first response to Garibaldi, his face is very angry, but then it changes to appreciation and then it changes to introspection. And that was just, a, it's it's very subtle face acting, but it's really well done. And actually, not that we can draw too many parallels between this show and another one. But there's a Star Trek show called Deep Space Nine, and uh, mm -hmm. Benjamin Sissio, Avery Brooks, to me also is a very subtle actor, and his facial expressions are part of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You mean that other series that was on at the same time with a commander that was mired in PTSD? Right, right. With in a, yeah. DS9's case, it was <laughs> the death of his wife at Wolf 359. Yeah. Imagine that. There, there are some similarities there. Mm-hmm. So timeline points, this is the second anniversary since the station went online. Now we talked about this before because I think I had seen this episode when we talked about an earlier one. It's the second anniversary. It's been a little over a year, actually right at a year since the, um, since the pilot went up. Because didn't the pilot go up in, did it go up in January or February of 93? The Gathering aired on February 22nd. 1993. So next week is going to be a little closer to the exact one year anniversary. That'll be off by a date. So we've been, at, we've been out for right out a year and that's been on operation for six months before that as they were gathering together the ambassadors and such. So the idea is that they're preserving the passage of time, but it looks like it's been dilated just a little bit because it has, uh, to all understandings, it has not yet been two years in our calendar time. Yeah, I think what's happening is that some of the early or some of these early episodes in this season, they are airing one week apart, but taking place more than a week apart. Okay. And then near the end of the season, they start piling up a little bit closer together. Okay. I see that. That makes sense. 
So it's more like, you know, we got 22 episodes per season, but each season represents one year on Babylon 5. So think about it on average as though the episodes are actually about two and a half weeks apart. That makes sense. Because, you know, they'd be more spread out. And then we have others. Um, there's an explicit two-parter coming, which would happen, you know. Back to back. Yeah. Kind of like comics. Exactly. Comics come out one month apart, but the issues, you know, the time between them varies widely. Yeah, unless Jim Shooter is editor-in-chief. when <laughs> If it's Christmas outside, it should be Christmas in the comic, which is why the X-Men have Christmas every, like, three weeks. Well, yeah, that that's not just Jim Shooter. That's a pretty regular thing. Yeah. Now, we have organic technology in this. Now, whenever I've seen organic technology presented in a lot of sci-fi stuff, it's usually shown as plant or animal life that grows or is grown and adapted to particular uses, but it still looks like plant or animal life. This seems to be more like living tissues, but being used basically like plastics. It doesn't look like living tissue until you examine it. Yeah, um, they talk about a carapace and you talked about the beetle type thing. So it appears this was modeled more on the insect world than on others. Yeah, but the insect thing that they have that they put on his chest is the only thing that really looked like a life form. All of the other, like, tools and props and everything else, they just look like plastic. <laughs> they, 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 don't, they don't look organic. Yeah, and I think that's more about the limitation of the props in the early production. Because, let's keep in mind, we talked about how this is the first production episode. Warner Brothers was trying to launch its own network. So this is before the WB came out. This was on P10. So P-T-E-N. And up to this point, there weren't a huge amount of high-quality syndicated series. So the Star Treks had been released through syndication. And that was off the major networks. But any other sci-fi that had been off a major network tended to look cheap. So I think we have elements where some people had kind of low expectations for the show. and. They, or Straczynski also really wanted people with stage experience because they were used to improvising and making things look good on short times and low budgets. So, you know, you find out the numbers. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I remember the comments Straczynski made when he heard the budgets for Voyager. The pilot episode of Voyager cost as much as the first season of Babylon 5. Wow. So. They did really well with what they had. But yeah, I agree. Reading on a script level, it is... There's a lot of things that we liked were in there right from the start. For example, there's the fact that it's going to be an incremental change in Nelson Drake. And he's saying, starts here, we've got a little bit of change in every scene until I specifically say it's complete, which does come later. There's um, a lot of callbacks saying, like, this should look like it was, you know, from the insect world and inspired by insects. So I wonder if the um, the development of the props might have been one of the elements that he felt was needing more work and should be pushed back. But they went ahead forward, so they just used what they could. Yeah, although it sounds like that conversation was made on a script level. So he made no mention of the props. Although some of that is because when you're reading it, when he is critical of things, he is very careful to be critical of himself. Mm -hmm. So he he rarely, I 
reading these scripts, I have now read about three quarters of the first season. I've read his autobiography. I can't think of a time when Straczynski was saying that, yeah, this person didn't do their job as well as they should have, except maybe a couple of cases where he said they couldn't do their job as well as, as they wanted to because I did not give them what they needed in the script or you know, whatever he does, he takes ownership of anything that goes wrong rather than giving a slight to others. We did mention before that there were exert concerns were expressed about Richard Compton. I think it was Compton or about one of the, the directors, but that was not in what Straczynski wrote. That's in what Larry Dottilio wrote. Hmm. So Straczynski has, you know, he has made very clear that essentially he is being incredibly professional. He's not throwing anyone under the bus. He's right. saying he's, he's taking ownership for his errors. And sometimes it feels like, no, that should be someone else's error that he is also taking ownership of. But with a history of people in various sci-fi shows kind of getting catty and throwing each other under the bus in biographies, once again, looking at Star Trek a little bit on that, it's nice to hear that he's avoiding that in his own descriptions. Yeah, I think the, the only time I remember him trash talking someone was actually when he's talking about his time on Jake and the Fat Man, where... He said the two leads still have equal acting ability to this day, which is unaffected by the fact that one of them is dead. <laughs> I like that. So just a couple of minor things. In the opening conversation between Garibaldi and Kramer, I found out we still have Tuesdays because he mentioned something happening on Tuesday. And we still have Ouija boards. So those things both still exist in the year 2584, whatever year it is. Yeah. I wasn't expecting to still have Tuesdays. Although in Star Trek, we have Tuesdays as well, because they mention them in Generations. But that was kind of a surprise and kind of a humorous surprise also. You just don't expect, I don't know, you don't expect super future science fiction to mention. But yeah, on Tuesday, that's going to happen. Yeah, they, they tend to abandon that, but I'm not sure why. That's Even the people who are trying to go everything base 10 haven't built a metric day, because the ratio between the length of our day and the length of our year is not a power of 10. It's not much of a power of anything. I guess I guess it's really close to seven, a multiple of seven, but... Well, kind of. It's also variable. They figure in the days of the dinosaurs, it was about 20 hours because there's gravitational friction between the Earth and the Moon that's slowing our rotation. Oh, okay. We find out some stuff about Garibaldi. Kramer confronts him in one of her few scenes in the middle of the episode. She confronts him uh, until it says that he's been fired five times for unspecified personal problems and that this assignment to Babylon 5 is his last chance to make good. So we still have not found out the details on Garibaldi's past, but it continues to build. Uh, yes, and we also know how he feels about it when she asks if he'd like to comment, and he said he'd rather have his tonsils removed through his ears. Yes, he's very private about it. We don't know what's going on, but he... Partly because the episodes haven't told us, partly because he does not want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, so again, like I said rewatching this when i realize not only are they confronting actual issues like so the, the ptsd with sinclair is there and there's no pretense or no expectation that this is going to be the last time that gets mentioned that does feel like it's going to be an ongoing thing and the other thing is an issue with scientific research that was starting to become an issue then some people are calling it a crisis now when you have corporate funded research the government funding 
is more likely to fund research for the sake of pure research. But there have been trends lately, particularly in North America, to back away from government funding and let private corporations fund the research that has a couple of issues. One is that sometimes the corporations have results that they want to get. And even though it doesn't happen as often as a lot of people claim, there are times where people will find a result because they invented the result. A much more serious issue is that when the scientific process is working well, you have someone who makes what they feel is an initial discovery, and then it gets checked and rechecked in multiple ways before it's truly accepted. Yeah, it's called peer review. And it's one of those things that, you know, when you're talking about a study and you're talking about a discovery, you want that adjective peer reviewed in front of it, because that means that other people unrelated to it have gone back and checked the work and, you know, duplicated the the findings. Exactly. And you can have some peer review because you'll have a peer reviewed paper where other people read that original discovery paper and say, this this seems okay, this seems legitimate. But the problem is that the multiple views on it and that those verification experiments do not lead to patents and they do not lead to profit because you're confirming somebody else's discovery. So they're the ones who would make the money off it. And in a corporate scene, that's spending time, which means spending money, not on furthering the goals, but on, you know, duplicating the work, which is a quote unquote waste. Yeah, you're not likely to get oil company A to confirm the discovery that oil company B made that stands to let oil company B make a lot of money unless oil company A has some sort of partnership to also make money off it. And what we're seeing in here, this whole thing was because people were taking the shortcuts in the science and it was being funded by people who had a specific goal that they wanted. Now, in this case, it looks like the results were valid. They were looking for weapons. They found a weapon. And sometimes that works. Not all corporate funding is bad. When IBM funds research into faster hard drives, there is zero motivation to fake those results. They want legitimately faster hard drives. I think the idea here is not that the science was bad because it was corporate, but because the science was badly motivated because it was corporate. They're, They're going for weapons. And, you know, that's not that's not the best motivation for scientific discovery. Yeah. Also, it was rushed. They were skipping quarantine protocols. They were skipping other processes that might have allowed them to study this weapon. And, you know, had they not focused on the weapon and translated the information first, they could have realized what would happen when someone gets this thing grafted onto them and, you know, what the implications would be. So maybe they could have saved all of these lives by having a more complete understanding with things in the proper quarantine and in the proper study without Nelson Drake having to have gone through this right, and killed the other people. I don't know how much of that was running through Straczynski's head, because like I said, it was just starting to become a concern in the 90s. This may be coincidental, but that's an element that resonates with me more now than it did when I first saw this close to 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Dr. Franklin's and Dr. Hendrix's final confrontation whenever Hendrix is like, you know, we can we can make this happen if you just don't stop me, don't turn me in. And looking at Franklin's face in that moment, he does look almost tempted because Hendrix is, t- is, is basically dangling, think about what you as a physician, as a man of medical science could do 
with all of the money that would come from this. And I think most people would at least be tempted by that idea. You would feel the draw of, yeah, think about what I could do before you finally make your decision. In this particular case, Franklin had already made choices that preclude everything because that's when security arrives to take Hendricks away. And so Franklin doesn't even have the chance to give in to the temptation. He just, he's already done the right thing. Yeah. And that's one of the things I like about Franklin. He has a very strong sense of ethics and he's got personal ethics that may or may not jive with the ethics of Earth Force that he works for. Right. Yeah, he's he's not a fan of Earth Force. No. And we see the first glimpses of that now when they come to take the biological weapon that he was hoping they would just ignore. But that's going to be a thing again. So, yeah, yeah, that uh, I wrote down that appearance of Earth Force. When they show up, it kind of felt inevitable, like that was the direction of the plot once it happened. But I also didn't see it coming. Like I thought, carry Hendricks away, story is resolved. But whenever they show up and like, no, we want this back on Earth. We're going to use these weapons. Yeah, this this is good stuff. Let's have it. Like, I didn't predict that. But once it happened, I was like, yeah, that that would be the natural conclusion, wouldn't it? It would. Uh, Reinforces it. And we get Ivanova saying, oh, no one reads the Santiana anymore. Right. Speaking of Ivanova, she had a fantastic line in this because one of Kramer's few scenes is, like I said, she comes up on the bridge whenever things are really tense with what's his brains, Nelson, and she wants to get in Sinclair's way. And as she walks up towards the upper deck, Ivanova stalks right in front of her and says, don't, you're too young to experience that much pain. And just says it completely straight, like she always does when she's on duty. Every line is always straight. Mm-hmm. And Kramer just like walks away. <laughs> yep, that uh, you actually hit what I was going to contribute to our last best hope section for the standout character or character moment. Even though this is largely about Franklin and his ethics. But that that moment, Ivanova doesn't get a lot of screen time. But in this episode, the, the, the moments you get are, they're just gold. Yeah. And that's part of it. And a lot of it is the way Claudia Christian delivers it. There is no doubt in my mind that if she wanted to cause someone pain, she would know exactly how she, how to do it. Right. It's it's like one of those things, one of those times where, how, how to phrase this, she may or may not be actually intending to damage Kramer at that particular instant for that particular level of threat. But you fully believe that she could if she wanted to, if she felt it was necessary. Yeah, I believe that she would prefer not to follow through on the threat, mm-hmm. but she would do it if she had to. Right. Because she would, in her mind, that's not just a threat. She made a promise about what is going to happen, and she will keep her promises. <laughs> she would definitely keep those kinds of promises. Let's see. The the final sentiment of the show, all of this was for nothing unless we go to the stars. It's a nice sentiment. And it gives a nice, you know, little bit of hopeful ending into the episode. But it also feels a little, I don't know, not exactly at odds, but somehow ill-fitting. Because, like, one of the big themes of this episode is, especially in the in the latter half, when they're talking about 
Nelson and his programming from the old biological weapon, which I didn't go into the synopsis, but it's actually a person's memory and everything else because it didn't seem that important. But the idea is that genetic purity, you must destroy everyone who is not a genetically pure Ikaran. And so he's killing all the humans. But back in Ikara's history, even Akarans are not genetically pure Akarans because everyone is a little bit different. And they bring that up, and it's a theme of the conversation between Franklin and Ivanova because Earth is being, you know, subsumed with this racist, this xenophobic concept. And so anti-racism is a theme of the episode. But then we just go on with, you know, yeah, this is all great, but it'd be for nothing if we don't go to the stars. And it just kind of seemed a little bit weird to go out on that note after having the other themes being prevalent. I didn't really feel a conflict there. So you're absolutely right that, I mean, they explicitly compare this to the actions of the Nazis in World War II, where the definition of a car purity was developed not by scientists, but by ideologues and it's propaganda and it's the impossible standard and they compare it to the idea of Aryan purity used by the Nazis. But I don't see a conflict between that and going to the stars because right, to me that was saying, yeah, we have this culture and all these cultural developments, everything we've done will be pointless if we're wiped out. And yeah, the sun will grow cold, but it'll expand into a giant and we're pretty confident that when our sun goes super giant, it's going to engulf Mercury, Venus, and the Earth. It's just a question of whether it will also engulf Mars, because super giants really are big. So, yeah, we'll be gone before it goes cold, unless we are out in the stars. So I think it's about preserving culture, but not overriding it and recognizing that things will change and adapt and evolve over time. And you, rather than fighting it, you should be open to it. Maybe, you know, he does list all the, you know, the, a, a variety of people who've advanced, you know, the various earth cultures and the names that he gives are from a variety of, of cultural and ethnical backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds of the names. So the the diversity of humanity is implied in his description. I just don't think it necessarily comes out. And for me, at least, it didn't come out in the way the scene was scene was presented. But I see what you're saying. We are doing all of these amazing things as, as a diverse group of humans. And that variety is a good thing and worth preserving. Yeah, the names specifically that he mentions, according to the quote section on IMDb, are Marilyn Monroe, Lao Tzu, Einstein, Morobuto, Buddy Holly, and Aristophanes. So... And Aristophanes, I don't know if he meant him as the playwright or the scientist, because the ancient Greeks, they didn't really distinguish between the fields of study. No. So he, he wrote plays that the high school I teach at is covering in our English language arts class. And he was one of the first to estimate the radius of the earth. And he actually did a really good job. Plus, he developed the sieve of Aristophanes for finding prime numbers, which is used by a lot of computer programs, because it's faster than pulling a created list from a website <laughs> so anyways those were all the thoughts i had on the episode i don't know if there's any oh one other thing one tiny little thing i forgot to mention this last week whenever we started this series and we were talking about the segments you mentioned the zocalo 
and I had no idea what you were talking about, but I was going with it because you know Babylon 5 and I don't. And I don't recall it ever being mentioned on screen until last week's episode. We got another mention again in this week's episode. So if the Zocalo was name dropped in the gathering or whatever, I missed it. But it is the the public area in the middle of the station, like where Franklin and Ivanova are having drinks and stuff. That is the Zocalo. And finally, either they finally mentioned or I finally noticed the mention of it. Yeah, I think. Uh, this is the second on-screen mention of the the Zocalo, which is also the area for commerce, which is why we decided to use that as the name of our segment where we put in ads for other podcasts, which we have earlier in the agenda, but we kind of got into the discussion. <laughs> Perhaps, since we don't actually have a closing music tag, um, pulling back the curtain and having the conversation live on mic, should we just move that to the end of the episode? Works so that's how we end? Okay. So that's what we'll do from now on. So I think we covered the league in session session where we have our general discussion and thoughts. The last best hope is our standout character or character moment. I've already mentioned that Vonova's you're too young to feel that much pain line was my choice, which when you brought it up there, is there anything you want to draw attention to was for your choice for the last best hope? You know, it's funny because I wanted to have this segment and I keep on forgetting to think about this ahead of time. <laughs> I'm the one who had the idea for it and then I keep dropping the ball on it. Um, hmm. I think the conversation between Garibaldi and Sinclair in his office about how Sinclair is doing mental health wise is a pretty great moment as well. You're right. This is Franklin's episode and he does a fantastic job and there are lots of things going on there. But as far as just like a moment that stood up my mind from the episode, that conversation was also really good. Mm-hmm. It was. And it shows a lot about Sinclair, I think. As you mentioned, the, the anger is there in his face at first, but how quickly he goes to accept it. Because I can imagine in a lot of real-life situations, it would take a week or a month before someone realizes, oh yeah, they did have a point, and even longer before they admit it to them face-to-face. Mm-hmm. So I think part of that tells or talks about you know, the caliber of person Sinclair is, and the strength of their friendship. That conversation starts with Garibaldi saying, you've been my friend longer than you've been my commanding officer. So I'm going to say this now. I I think that's it. And part of it, apparently it works partly because Michael O'Hare and Jerry Doyle really gelled off camera too, at least early in the season. And I think I recently had a conversation with somebody, and I'm not going to go to details or say whoever it was or whatever, but one of the things that this conversation does is that Garibaldi is not presenting judgment. He's presenting concern. He's not saying what you did was wrong. He's just saying what, you know, you want to think about what this might mean. It was a conversation I had recently. It was presented more of a judgment, like this is, this is not a good way to be thinking. And I kind of wish the person had been more, what do you think about the way that you're thinking on this? And so it's just, I I liked the way Garibaldi presented it. And I think that his social credit (laughs) with, with Sinclair as a good friend puts him in a position to be able to have that conversation where somebody else might not have. And so Sinclair hearing the words is a bit angry at first, or at least caught off guard. But 
this is his best friend he's talking to. And, and that means something. It does. And that's a good point about the way Garibaldi approached it. Because as you were saying that, I realized that, yeah, had it been Ivanova trying to have the conversation, it would have been shorter, more direct, and more adversarial with, you're doing stupid things, the station needs a commander, snap out of it and stop this. Right. (laughs) She does not do subtle. (laughs) No. At least not that we've seen so far. Plenty of Christian does subtle, Ivanova does not do so. Right, right. But that was my last... uh... Last best hope. So giving form to the dream, this is where we talk about tidbits from the episode that we should keep in mind for the future. Now, I have one or two. The organic technology that is taken off by Earth Force and the context of the growing unrest on Earth and the xenophobic sentiment. We've talked about that latter part before, and I'm wondering if the actual weapons being carried off, are those a plot element that come up later? Yeah, at the very least, the existence of insect-inspired organic technological weapons is important. The fact that Akara was invaded five times, almost back-to-back, about a thousand years ago, is important. Okay, so that's that's, that's a plot or or world-building element that we're going to come back to. Yes, including that timeline. My other element, and this is accidental... But when I was scanning the the plot description for the name of the episode, I'm sorry, the name of the company, Interplanetary Expeditions, the wiki page for this episode says, first mention of, inter, I think it's Interstellar Expeditions. It was Interstellar News, Interplanetary Expeditions. Sorry. Anyway, since that was the first mm-hmm. mention of it, and since that name had a link, which I did not follow, I'm assuming that that's going to come back later. Yeah. It, as you said. First mention, the Interstellar News Network is also a thing. And, you know, we have the, the journalist who's coming in and saying that, yeah, people did not have high hopes for Babylon 5 when it went online. In fact, Marianne Kramer has not made her final appearance on Babylon 5. We will see her again. Plus the character building of Sinclair with his PTSD, Garibaldi flirting and you know not sure if this is an aphrodisiac or a floor wax but he buys it anyway just in case but yeah that's an element of his character we've seen before yeah yeah so those and like you said the growing what they call pro-earth which is really anti-diversity and anti-alien culture idea it yeah it's it's interesting how hateful ideas like to cloak themselves in patriotic ideas a lot of that one of the podcasts that i would highly recommend is called you are not so smart it's a fantastic podcast about human psychology and how our subconscious mind lies to us and one of the things that he has covered is the fact that our subconscious absolutely positively will go through all sorts of completely illogical mental gymnastics and tell us that what we've come to is logical if it reinforces the emotions that are most comfortable and also allows us to avoid the idea that we are the bad guy. Mm. No one wants to see themselves as the bad guy. So what someone might look at as a reprehensible position, the people who are following it might think, no, this makes sense. It's a good thing and honestly believe it. 
which I think is exactly the psychology that Hitler and those around him exploited. And I don't want to downplay how evil Hitler was, but he could not have done that alone. Oh, no, yeah. He was a regime, not a, not a single man. Yeah. So, he, you know, as terrible as he was, he came into that position by being legally elected. He was able to play on enough of the psychology and build enough support and existing sentiment to be voted in. This is something that we have to watch for because humanity is prone to this kind of thing. And sometimes it's not clear until we are looking back retrospectively. And even then, those involved may not see it in retrospect. It may just be the future generations who are not in the same emotional circumstance looking at it saying, no, this is what was happening, who can give the accurate view. So that is something that has happened time and time again. Hitler is the standout example, but he is far from the only example. Otherism has plagued the human species. And Straczynski likes to study human history. And that's the kind of thing that has resonated with him as the kind of lies that people will tell each other. So, and mostly tell themselves. So I think that is part of it. And that's when I said that this raises in my esteem, I realized, yeah, these themes and, and things he's addressing, they need to be addressed and discussed so we can try to recognize when they are happening to us and when we are the ones getting sucked down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. So that takes us to, well, I guess that wraps up all of our segments except for how to get in touch with us. Yes, the one we're calling Comlink. So one way to get in touch with us is to email Babylon5 30 years later at gmail.com. And you can use numbers or the numerals for the numbers. You can correctly spell the words for the numbers. We've got all four variations. Send it. We'll get it. If you have spoilers about future episodes in there, please clearly mark them in the subject line so we know that I'll be the one that reads them and not John because he has not gone as far in the Babylon 5 journey as I have. We will read them all on the air unless you ask us not to, although we may set them aside until they are no longer spoilers. <laughs> and um, you can also leave comments on each of our websites. You can leave comments on johnreadscomics.com, where my various podcasts are listed, and as well as this one. And whatever podcast I have going on right now, since we're recording this way in advance, it's probably the Superman read-through podcast, but you know, who knows the future? Yeah. Maya and I am one of the contributors to Bureau42.com. That's the official web host of my other podcasts. And this will be linked there as well, so you can leave comments there. Uh, also, reviews on your favorite podcatcher. Um, we will be checking Apple Podcasts on a regular basis. If there are other podcatchers where you can have reviews left, if we don't notice them, feel free to let us know. Hey, y'all, I left you a review over on Pods R Us. Please, uh, and then we'll read it and thank you, you know, profusely on there. Yeah. And uh, these episodes are also released on YouTube with just a little visualization and title card. You can leave comments there. It does have some manual filtering so if you've left a comment that youtube thinks maybe that's spam i might have to go approve it but yes you can find our stuff there as well so many ways to get in touch with us and please do because we do intend 
to have standalone feedback episodes when the original series went on breaks of longer than three weeks or four weeks. We have plans for uh, interstitial episodes during those uh, broadcast breaks. But there's not a broadcast break next week because next week we'll be covering the Parliament of Dreams on February 23rd, 2024. So do come back for that. Yeah, and uh, we will end with a a trailer for this time one of my other podcasts. It'll be 99 Years, 100 Films, where Trey Hooks and I are going through the winner of every Best Picture Academy Award ever to date, which we're kind of hoping that they don't have a tie before they hit the 100 film mark, because that would break our title. But we are getting close. We are already in the 90s for the releases, just a few more years to go. And at the time of this recording, we are all, are we approaching the halfway mark. We are actually just starting our fifth decade. All right. Okay. To our listeners, you'll have that, that the trailer for 99 Years 100 Films at the end here. Good eating to you. And thanks for listening. I'm going to make them an awfully kind of you. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. 99 Years, 100 Films. A monthly look at every film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. With your hosts, Blaine Dowler and Trey Hooks, hosted at Bureau42.com. My mom always said, life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.